Hey, Christ community, so glad all of you are here. Greetings to our 15th Street campus, as well as our West Campus and our Traditions venue. Really, really glad all of you are here. Uh, before we jump into the message, I wanted to celebrate something that when I heard about it, just kind of blew me away. Uh, one of the things that we've been learning from the Gospel of Luke is the life-giving impact of generosity, how God wants to grow our hearts in generosity. Well, last month, um, there was an amazing outpouring of generosity towards Christ community, both in our overall ministry budget, as well as our For the City and Beyond vision. So our total giving in December was one of the largest monthly amounts ever given in the history of this church, uh, which is amazing. So uh, praise God for that. Uh, God is growing our hearts in generosity, and it's such an awesome thing. Um, also, in the year 2017, last year, we had 275 family units give for the first time ever to Christ's community, which is really, really fun to see. I mean, generosity like this releases the supernatural power of God in our lives in a significant way. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for every one of you who has and continues to give to this church, supporting God's activity here. We are in this together, and I am so excited to see what God will do um, with our church as we continue to grow in generosity in the, in the months ahead. So all of that's worth celebrating. <clears throat> okay, so if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 15. We are in the midst of a journey through the entire book of Luke, and today we come to one of the most well-known passages in this book. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son because it's about a son who squanders his father's inheritance. But we're going to see today that that particular title of prodigal son doesn't really capture the full meaning of this story. So if you look up the word prodigal in the dictionary, this is what you read. The, the word prodigal means spending resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. That's prodigal. And while that certainly fits the son, it also applies to another character in this story, the father who represents God. See, what this story ultimately reveals is a God who is recklessly extravagant with his resources towards us. He is a prodigal God. And yet so often, this is not our perception of him. And we end up missing out on so much of what he has for us, which represents the third character in the story, uh, the older brother, which we're gonna, who we're going to focus on next week. Now, I know that this story, for, for many of us here, I know this story may be very familiar. In fact, honestly, I kind of struggled at the beginning of my preparation for this message because I just felt like this, this passage is so familiar. I mean, what's new to glean here, right? But something happened to me um, that changed my whole perspective on this passage. I was driving to church to work on this message early one morning. I was driving to church to work on this message. And on the way, I felt, I felt this nudge from the Holy Spirit, um, encouraging me to place myself in the story. Because I, I felt stuck in my preparation, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, place yourself in the story. To see, the Holy Spirit was saying, see myself as the wayward son. And when I did that, this story came alive to me. It came alive to me. And that's really my heart for us today in this passage, because the reality is, you are in this story right now. <laughs> Every one of us, you are in this story. Your journey with God right now can be placed somewhere in this story. It may be early in the story, 
It may be in the middle of the story, or it may be at the end of the story, but you are in this story, which means that God wants to speak to you directly from this passage. So let me read this portion of the story so we get the whole feel for it, and then we're going to unpack it. Beginning of verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. <clears throat> when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Okay, so we're told that in this family with two sons, the younger son went to his father one day and he said, give me my share of the estate. Notice he didn't ask for it. Hey, dad, would it be okay if... No, 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 that's not what happened. The younger son demanded this from his dad. Give me my share of the estate. Now, in that culture, this demand would have been incredibly insulting and disrespectful because he was basically saying to his dad, I don't want you, I want your stuff. Now, I would prefer if you were dead. That's how I feel about you. I just want your stuff, so give it to me. Everyone hearing the story when Jesus was telling this would have been absolutely shocked and they would have known that the only appropriate response to this demand would be for the dad to say, get out of my house and never come back. You are no longer my son. You are no longer in this family. That would have been the appropriate response, and everyone knew it. But the father doesn't do that. Instead, he honors his son's demand. He divides up his property and gives his younger son his portion. Now, we can read that really quickly, but we need to understand they didn't have banks back there. This wasn't like a simple phone call to Fidelity. Hey, could you sell some mutual funds and, you know, transfer it to my bank and we'll get this done within the hour? No, that's not what was going on here. This would require selling of land. 
This would require the father to sell land. And to people in that day, land was everything. So see, the son is basically asking the father to tear his life completely apart right now. Dad, I want you just to tear your life completely apart from me. And he does. The father does. The father responds with love, even in the face of this supreme act of disrespect and insult. He gives his son exactly what his son wants. So very soon, the son packs up all of his stuff, including all this inheritance money, and he travels to a distant country, which is another act of rebellion and rejection. He doesn't stay close to home. He doesn't move to a village nearby. He goes, he gets as far away as possible. In other words, the younger son is saying, I don't, I want your stuff. And beyond that, I don't want anything else to do with you. I don't want anything to do with our family. I don't want anything to do with our culture. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. So he goes to this faraway place. And in this faraway place, the son squanders the entire amount of money on extravagant living. He's, he's a prodigal. He recklessly wastes all of this money on himself for his own pleasure, which was fun for a while. But at some point, a severe famine hits and suddenly his opulent lifestyle comes to an end. He has no money to buy food. And remember, he is now in a faraway country. He's not around family. He cannot get help from his family. He is basically on his own. And you can also imagine how all the friends that were friends because of all the money he was spending, those, those people are nowhere to be found now because he has no money. He's all alone, which is why the text here. The, the NIV, what I just read, translates this, he hired himself out. But what the text really says is, the text literally says, he fastened himself to a citizen of that country. See, that, that, that citizen didn't reach out to help. This wasn't about, oh, I'm, you're in such a hard situation. Let me reach out and help you. That's not what happened. No, the language is very clear. He fastened himself. In other words, this young prodigal basically had to sit on this guy's porch Right Until he got a job. He wasn't leaving until he had a job to do something. And so the person sent him out to do the, you know, probably the, the most menial job possible in that situation. That was to feed the pigs. Now think about that, pigs. For a Jew, pigs were unclean animals, right? Jews wouldn't eat pigs. They wouldn't have anything to do with pigs. And here he is with pigs as his only companion. And you see, he is so hungry that what the pigs are eating is starting to look good. I mean, Jesus is telling this story intentionally to, to let us know and his readers, his initial hearers know how far this young man has fallen from where he was to now hanging out with these unclean animals and he wants to eat what they're eating. This guy has nothing. He is starving. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and place ourselves in this story. Because what we see here is a vivid picture of what happens every time we choose to sin. Every time we choose to sin. Whenever we choose to sin, in that moment, we are saying to God, I don't want you. I want this other thing more. Right now, God, you are dead to me. I don't want to listen to your counsel. 
I don't want to be with you. I don't really care how my decisions impact you or anyone else. I just want to do what I want to do. We're just like the sun in this story. Every time we sin, we are just like the sun in this story. Now, when we choose to sin, there's, there's usually an experience of pleasure, right? Initially, it's fun, maybe feels good. But no matter how pleasurable it is, a famine is coming. Famine eventually hits. The pleasure doesn't last. And, and very soon, reality sets in. The emptiness, the unsatisfied hunger, the isolation... I remember a number of years ago meeting with a man who um, I had heard was having an affair. And, and so when we met, I you know, kind of gently confronted him about this. He admitted it, and I was trying to talk him out of the choices that he was making, but he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. He said, man, the, the sex is incredible. I cannot give this up. So he divorced his wife, married this other woman. I saw him a few years later. He looked like death warmed over. There was no joy, and he mentioned to me how his wife, his new wife, gripes all the time and watched soap operas all day, how his relationship with his kids was non-existent. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Someone has wisely observed that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's the reality of sin. It looks so good. It looks so appealing. It looks so pleasurable. And initially it is. But eventually, eventually, famine always hits. Famine always hits. And there is nothing but devastation and emptiness and greater bondage that we're left with. Famine always hits with sin. See, every one of us here can place ourselves in this story, can't we? We, we know that pathway. <laughs> we know it. Perhaps we're living it right now, and it's awful. It is awful. Now, here's the good news. No matter how um, bad things are, um, we do have a choice. We can, we can obviously just continue on the path we're on and, and let that just bring greater and de greater devastation, which is what it will do. Or we can choose another response, which is exactly what we see happening in this story. We're told in verse 17 that the son came to his senses. He came to his senses. Now, this phrase literally means he came to himself. He came to himself. And I love that because here's the deal. Sin's primary power over us is always through deception. See, sin always lies to us. Oh, if you have me, you'll be so happy. And fulfilled. If you have me, if you do what I'm encouraging you to do, whatever that happens to be, you'll, you'll be so joyful. It's all lies. And the more we believe these lies, the more disconnected we become, we, we come, the more disconnected we become from our true selves. That's who we ultimately get disconnected from. We, we get disconnected from our true self, our true and good heart, which God has given to us. And so one of the best tools God uses to get our attention in those moments of deception or those seasons of deception is to have us feel the weight of our actions, to feel the consequences of our actions. Because we, we suddenly see the emptiness 
and the isolation that porn is causing in our lives. Or where we see how our binge drinking is destroying our family. And in that moment, whatever it happens to be, in that moment, we realize that God offers us something far better than the life we're living. And that's exactly what happens to the younger son. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. See, he realizes that what his father offers is so much better than the life he's pursuing. See, this is huge, folks, this is huge. The, the lie of sin, the lie of sin is that it offers us what the father can't, right? That's the lie of sin. It offers us what the father doesn't. It, the sin gives you what the father, what God the father can't. In other words, if you obey God here, you're going to miss out on real life. You're going to miss out on, on lots of stuff. See, that's the lie of sin. But the son realizes for himself in the midst of feeding pigs, he realizes that is a total lie. I'm the one missing out. I'm the one missing out on genuine life. See, this kind of clarity is what we all need in the midst of whatever temptations we're facing. We need our hearts and our minds reminded that what God offers us is so much better than what this sin offers us, no matter what the sin is. What God offers us is so much better than what this sin offers us. We need our hearts reminded of that. And that, that's a critically important realization to see that. But that alone won't change anything. That realization alone, it's a, bit, it's a third step, but it won't change anything. We Alone, it won't change anything. We need something else as well. And the younger son shows us exactly what that is. So this verse 18, the son says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. See, the son takes action. The son takes action. He does something. He turns away from his lifestyle, choosing to leave it, and he turns toward his father. He goes to his father. See, what we see here, this is so powerful here. What we see here is this powerful picture of, of what repentance looks like. This is exactly it. This is what repentance looks like. Repentance is not just confession. That's not, just, that's not repentance. Repentance is not just confession. And repentance is not just feeling bad for what we've done. To repent is to actually turn from the sin. It's to turn from the sin. It's to cut it off. It's to close that portal and to move toward God. We take action and we start going in another direction. Now, a crucial part of the repentance that we see here is that the son fully owns what he's done. He fully owns it. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. There is confession here, but it's not just confession. But notice the nature of this confession. This is really, this is really significant. Unlike, and it's so different than so many public apologies that we hear today, right? Um, I mean, so many public apologies we hear today, <clears throat> they sugarcoat it. 
the son doesn't do that. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't excuse it. You know, like, uh, I'm sorry if my actions hurt you. Uh, translation, you're the one who's too sensitive. Um, or here's another one. I'm, I'm sorry for my bad judgment. Translation, I'm really only sorry I got caught. Um, and, and, I mean, so many apologies today, public apologies. When you hear someone apologize publicly for something, just look at it through this lens. See if they're really owning what they've done or if they're excusing it or they're shifting the blame or they're minimizing the offense. The son doesn't do any of that. He owns his sin. He calls it what it is. I have sinned against God and against you. That's exactly right. I've sinned against God and against you. See, to repent, the first part of repentance is to fully own our sin. It's to admit it to God and if necessary to the person that we sinned against, which is what the son is doing here. He's practicing this speech. That's what he's doing. <clears throat> now, even though that, that part of the repentance piece is really, really healthy, there's an unhealthy part of this repentance speech that I want to point out because it can easily creep into our repentance as well. Notice, notice what he says in verse 19. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. Then he says, and against God and against you. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, in, in the story and in that culture, this statement is probably true at some level. What he did basically deserved his father disowning him. But as we're going to see in a moment, that's not the perspective of the father. See, what, what this is, this is the voice of shame. This is the voice of shame speaking. See, guilt and shame are very different, and we have got to understand the difference. This is critical. Both of them, we see both guilt and shame in this passage. Guilt is feeling bad for something we've done. Shame is feeling bad for who we are. So when, when the son says, I've sinned against you, that's guilt, and that's totally appropriate. I'm owning what I've done. I did this action, I'm now owning it, I've sinned against you. Totally cool. But then in his next sex, sex, uh, segment here, his next statement, he drifts into shame. I'm not worthy to be called your son. See, shame is feeling bad for who we are. Shame doesn't simply go after our guilt. It goes after our identity. See, shame is that voice that says, you're such a loser. How can you call yourself a Christian after what you've done? God couldn't possibly love you. That's shame. Do you see the difference? It's really important. You see the difference? In, in his repentance speech, the son moves from guilt to shame. And we can easily do the same thing. I, I do this all the time. I do this all the time. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago, and I, I said some things I'm in anger and there were like five people in the meeting. And I said some things in anger. And so afterwards, I got back to my office. And before I went home that night, I just, I felt bad. So I just emailed the people at the meeting. And I apologized for what I had said, what I had done. But then, so I sent the email out. Then on the way home, shame started to kick in. What is wrong with me? I am such a lousy leader. I'm such an insecure jerk. I mean, shame was just piling on. What are you doing in this job? You don't even belong here. You know, that kind of thing. It was just piling on. 
See, we need to recognize that that voice is not from God. That's not the voice of conviction. It's the voice of shame. And God doesn't want us living in shame no matter what we've done. No matter what we've done. See, guilt leads to genuine repentance. Guilt is good. It leads to genuine repentance. And then we can just leave it there. Shame leads to despair. It leads to depression. It leads to this inability to forgive ourselves. Repentance frees us. Shame puts us in greater bondage. So what's the answer to our shame? What is God's response to our repentance? Well, we see in the next part of the story. And this is, this is one of the most beautiful, it's one of the most powerful sections in all of Scripture. Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. See, his dad had been waiting. He'd been waiting looking, hoping for his son to return. See, folks, that is our father's heart towards us. That's God the father's heart towards us, even when we're sinning. Even in our sin. See, notice in this story, the father doesn't remove himself. He doesn't move away. He doesn't distance himself or change the locks on the doors or whatever. No, no, no. He stays right where he was, home. That's where the father is. <laughs> He's home and he stays there. See, when we, when we sin, God doesn't move away from us. We move away from him. God doesn't distance himself from us. He doesn't scowl at us and look at us with disdain and all that. No, no, no. He, he's the father in this story. God is the father in this story. He's on the porch just waiting and longing for us to turn back to him. So let me just ask, do you see God in that way? Do you see God in that way? You see him angry and scowling? Do you see him, the father on the porch, looking, longing? See, if you don't see God the father that way, Jesus urges you to. See, that's why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. See, Jesus on the cross, he actually experienced the father turning away, turning his face away so that we would never have to experience that ever again. Jesus experienced God removing himself so that we would never have to experience that again. The father's heart is towards you. Now, yes, his heart breaks at the painful choices we make. Absolutely. Just like a parent's heart breaks when a child is making bad decisions. His heart breaks at the choices we are, we're making. But, but it's a heart of compassion, not condemnation. Huge difference. It's a heart of compassion, not condemnation. So when the father sees his wayward son returning... Jesus says that he was filled with compassion and he ran toward his son. Now, this is not something that grown men did in that culture. This was the, the patriarch of the family would never run for anything. He would order someone else to do it, but he would never run for anything. It was undignified to do so. I mean, running, right? Harrison Ford in some recent movies, running, you know, that just, there's something about that just doesn't really work well, okay, in an action flick, okay, I mean, that's what I see in my mind, you know, this kind of running, but that's what's going on here, this older man, this father, he didn't care about what was dignified, what was undignified, he pulled up his robe, and he took off running, 
And when he got to his son, he, he threw his arms around him in this huge bear hug embrace. Now think about that. This is the father whom this son had totally, not that long ago, had totally disrespected him and rejected him. And now this father is showering his son, this son, this very son with love. So as this is happening, the son tries to get out his prepared repentance speech. And he gets a couple of sentences out, but then the dad interrupts and says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. See, th this is not the reaction or response that the son expected, right? It's not. He expected anger, disgust, distance, condemnation, just like we often expect from God after we mess up, right? That's what we expect. But this father was only filled with love and gratitude. His son had been lost. He's now found. His son that had been on a, a path of destruction is now choosing life. And God, here's the deal. God, our Father, feels the same way towards us when we turn to him in repentance. He is waiting with open arms. He is waiting with a heart of love. See, our sinful choices don't change in any way his love for us. They don't change in any way his love for us, but they do impact our experience of his love. Do you understand the difference? See, because of the son's repentance, he was able to experience the fullness of the father's love, a love that was there all along, but his sin had removed him from the experience of it. Father hadn't moved. Father didn't stop loving. The son had removed himself from the experience. And the same thing happens to us. Now, in this interaction here, I want to unpack this because there's, there's some powerful stuff here. In this interaction, there are a number of details that give us this beautiful picture of the life that God invites each one of us to live in. There are several elements here. First of all, the embrace. This bear hug embrace, kissing this embrace, it speaks of God's unconditional love, right? This embrace of the father, this huge bear hug he gives, even though his son had rejected him, now he squandered his resources. So this embrace speaks of God's unconditional love for us. He longs to enfold us in his love. It is not about our performance. It's about his unconditional love that's, that was secured for us on the cross. God is for you. He is for you. He wants to wrap his arms of love around you 24-7. He, he wants you and me to live in the reality of his unconditional love. So that's the first thing we see here. God's unconditional love. Second, there's the robe and the ring the robe and the ring that the father tells his servants to bring. He says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger. So think about this. Who in the home, who in that home would have the best robe? The father would. The father would. This robe is his robe. It is his robe. He wants his servants to go into his room and take his robe and place it on the shoulders of his son. And the ring, he says, get the ring. The ring is a signet ring. It's, it's a ring that signifies being a member of this family. The servants wouldn't, couldn't wear a ring like this. Only a son or daughter could wear a ring like this. 
Only children of the Father could wear a ring like this. You see, the robe and the ring, they both speak so powerfully to our identity. Our identity. The Father is saying, you are my son. Nothing has changed that. Nothing you have done has changed that. Your identity as a beloved son of mine has not changed. And here, folks, God wants you and me to live in the same reality. If we have placed our trust in Jesus, we are his beloved sons and daughters, period, permanently. Nothing we do can change this reality. No failure on our part, no matter how big, changes this truth that we are his beloved sons and daughters. That's who you are. Your behavior doesn't define you. Your sexual impulses don't define you. Your failed marriage doesn't define you. Your anxiety or depression don't define you. Your decision to have an abortion doesn't define you. What defines you is that you are a beloved son or daughter of God. You wear his robe. You wear his ring. Nothing can take that away from you. Nothing. No matter what you do, no matter what I do, nothing can take that away from us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, shame is constantly trying to get you and me to believe the lie that you're no longer the beloved of God. You're, you're no longer the beloved, not after what you've done. You're no longer a son or daughter. You can't be. He doesn't love you. That's shame. And when we listen to that voice of shame, we lose sight of our identity. We lose sight of who we are in Christ. See, God invites us. He invites us to live in this reality of the robe and the ring. Nothing Nothing can change your identity in him. You are his beloved son or daughter always. Always. Well, third, the son is then given sandals for his feet. He didn't even have shoes. <laughs> He's traveling. That's how much he had lost. He had lost everything. And so the father notices this. He notices his bare feet and he says, put sandals on his feet. Folks, this speaks of God's provision. God's provision. You have a heavenly father who cares for you. He cares about the minute, practical, day-to-day -day life reality issues and needs that you and I have. I mean, this is the same God who urges us in the Lord's prayer to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is the God who, who urges us to pray that way, to pray for his provision for our practical needs. The sandals represent, he cares for you, even those kinds of details. And then finally, there's the celebration, this party that the, the father throws. He says, kill the fattened calf, now, which was a big deal. I mean, meat was a delicacy in that day. Um, for most people. And that this calf was being raised for a special occasion. And the father says, this is it. This is the special occasion. This is worth celebrating. And what all this celebration represents is the father's joy. The father's joy. I mean, when, when we think about God, when you think about God, when we envision God, how many of us see a God with a huge smile on his face? Really, I mean, how many of us do? 
see him with a huge smile on his face? How many of us see a God of unbounding joy? So often our perception of God is the opposite, that he's somber and he's serious and he's always got a scowl on his face. But Jesus... I mean, Jesus, all Jesus can talk about in Luke 14 and 15, if you've been hanging with us for these weeks, all he can talk about in Luke 14 and 15 is a God who throws banquets and parties, right? I mean, that's what he's talking about in chapter 14. The father, the master throws a banquet and he invites all these people here again. Let's throw a party. Let's celebrate. All Jesus can talk about is a God who celebrates when a wayward son or daughter returns home. See, this is our God. He is a God of joy. He is a God of celebration. I mean, the picture Jesus gives us of our Father God is absolutely astounding here. It's astounding, this picture. We've just unpacked these four things. It's astounding what he's shown here. But here's the question. Are we living in these realities? In fact, I'm, let me ask us a different way. Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Perhaps some of us here, you're living in the first part of the story. You're in the midst of saying to God, I don't want you. I don't want your will for my life. I don't want to follow you in this area. I'm gonna, I want to do my own thing. I want to continue to have this affair. I want to continue to do what I want to do with my money. I want to continue living my life apart from your commands and will. See, some of us here, we're right there in that first part of the story. And I'm not here to condemn you know, all that. All, all I want to encourage you to do, you're here for a reason. I just want to encourage you to ask Jesus, what is he saying to you right now? If that's where you are in this story, what is Jesus saying to you right now about that? What is God the Father who loves you so much, what is he saying to you? For others of us here, maybe you find yourself in the second part of the story. You've made some choices and famine is hit. These choices that you've made are starting to wreak havoc. You are not in a good place and you know it. You feel empty. You feel alone. You feel powerless to change directions. You're just like at the bottom of the barrel or you're headed there and you know it. And here's the question for you. Same question in the first one. What is Jesus saying to you? You know where you are in the story. What is he saying to you in that place? And finally, perhaps there are some of us who find ourselves on the journey back. We're on the journey back. We long to be embraced by our Heavenly Father. We long to live in our identity as beloved sons and daughters, trusting His provision, experiencing His joy, all that is yours and mine. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but for me personally, it is hard to even wrap my mind around these realities, especially when I fail. It's hard to even wrap my mind and heart around this, but this is God's heart towards us. See, all of the things, all these things I've just described, they are ours to enjoy. They are ours to live in. These are, these are not one-time things that the son only gets the first time he repents, you know, and then they get taken away. That's not what this is describing. No, Jesus is describing the heart of our recklessly extravagant God towards you and towards me. He's a prodigal. He is recklessly 
wasteful with his grace. <laughs> he is recklessly extravagant with his grace towards us. See, Jesus is describing what it looks like. In this last scene, the third scene, he's describing what it looks like for you and me to live as his beloved son or daughter. To live that way. So I urge you, I urge you to not just see this story as a familiar story you've heard a hundred times and to not see it as a nice story. No, 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 no. Put yourself in this story and an entire new way of living will be open to you. If you put yourself in this story, an entire new way of living will be open to you. When you sin, run back to the Father. He's waiting with open arms. He is longing for you to live in the fullness of his love and his provision and his identity and his joy. Put yourself in the story. You won't regret it. Let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, thank you for this amazing story and this amazing picture of our prodigal God. And I pray that you would speak. You are speaking. Continue to speak to our hearts right now. So here, here's what I want us to do. We're kind of moving towards a response here in prayer and then in worship. But as we're just thinking about this passage, I want you just to place yourself in the story. Here's the question. Where are you in this story right now? Where are you? Are you in the first part of the story where you're in the midst of choices and you're saying to heck with you, God, bug off. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't want to follow you. I'm going to do, my, I'm going to do this other thing. If you're there, what is Jesus saying to you? What is the heaven, your God the Father saying to you in that place? As he longs for you and he looks with longing towards you. Just let him speak to you in that place. Let him identify, Lord, I pray you'd identify just the lies we're believing that we're going to miss out on so much if we say no to this and this. We're going to miss out on so much. I pray you'd expose the lies for these people who find themselves in this, this first place. Expose the lies and bring truth. Or maybe there's some of us here, we're in the, we're in the second part of the story. You realize you're just, you're in a place of famine Maybe you're in a season you've been rejecting God, doing your own thing, and, and you realize it's just not working out. And I want you to know, and God wants you to know, he, his love for you has not changed. He's waiting with open arms for you to repent. So I encourage you to do that. Just repent in the quiet of your heart. Admit, own your sin. And turn to him.
And there are many of us here, some of us here that are in the third part of the story. We're kind of on our way back. It's like we can't really believe these things are ours at the, in the far Father's house. So we're just kind of hanging back. But we long for that. And I just want to pray, Lord, for those here who are in the third part of the story. And we can't believe it's true, but we want to experience your love. And I pray for that. I pray for your embrace, that we would experience the fullness of your embrace and your love. I pray, Lord, that we would experience this spiritual reality of wearing your robe and wearing this ring that represents our identity as beloved sons and daughters. That's who we are that we would live in that. I just pray, God, you would just, as you're putting on that robe in a fresh way, we would, we would live in that reality that nothing can change that. I thank you for your provision, God, for those here who just need tangible provision, your um, provision of a daily need, financial, whatever it is. Lord, I just thank you that you're a father who knows that. You see that we need sandals on our feet. You see these needs, and I just pray your provision. And finally, Lord, I just thank you for your joy. And I pray that you would pour out your joy in our hearts. Holy Spirit, you would increase our experience of joy that we would know, God, you are a father who laughs over us and delights over us and celebrates. God, we want to live in that. We want to live in that as beloved sons and daughters. And so I pray for all of us here, wherever we're at in the journey, God, we want to be, we want to live in this third place. We want to live in your home where all these things are happening and living in these realities. So help us do that, Lord. I pray that for each one of us, Holy Spirit, just help us walk in these realities. You are so good. God, you are so good and we praise you and we love you. We love you, Lord. So we want to continue to respond to God's word, who he is, just to kind of drink up this, the reality of what is ours in him. So why don't we stand? We're going to sing some songs here that reflect these things. If you know the words, great. If you don't, man, you can just let the, the worship team sing over you. You can sit at some point or you can kneel somewhere in the room. We're just, this is about God the Father and enjoying these realities that are ours. So Holy Spirit, just come and pour out the unconditional love of the Father here. Pour that out, we pray. Thank you, Lord.